So the trend of good episodes continues. I really liked this one, despite some significant logical loopholes. And I'm pretty sure, having gone through this and looked through this and looked into this, I can tell you why those logical loopholes existed. Um, it's because the episode had a rather significant and major rewrite, and budget issues, and quick uh, shooting time, and reduced script polishing time, and blah, 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 blah. Um, I'll talk about the specific change to the script later, because that's actually pretty relevant. But they actually chopped off an entire day of filming out of making this film, which is just ridiculous. I uh, can't believe they would actually try to do that with a shot, with a show, with as many shots that are as complex and complicated as this one. They did a great job with the set. And I want to say really quick, before I get into a little bit more behind-the-scenes stuff, I really like this approach to the holodeck in Star Trek. Yeah, it's nice to have a period piece, but in my opinion, it's not enough to just have a period piece. It has to serve some function. Some function that matters to us, which therefore has to matter to the crew, and then to us, because we care about these people, right? So, I don't want to fling mud at Voyager, because I actually like Voyager. But the Victorian thing with, with Janeway, that basically served no purpose. It didn't inform us on her, it didn't inform us on the crew, and it never had any relevance to the modern day stuff. It was basically just us watching her have fun without any relevance to the show or to us. By contrast, Holmes has a, is a direct insight into Data's mentality, and, as we see here, this is as much an episode about the Enterprise and the interactions of types of life and the definition of life and what it means to be a living, sentient, sapient being as it is about being back in London. Hence why I feel like this usage of a period piece works. It's a shame we didn't get more of it. I don't know how many of you are watching this for the first time or for the first time in a while alongside me. But I'm going to spoil something for you right now. We only see Moriarty twice ever. Once here and once in a future episode, which is a ways from now. We'll be getting to that in literally like a year, I think, in real lifetime. It's going to be a while. That's how long of the gap. Why? Legal issues. And there's nothing in the world I love more than talking about than legal issues. Long story short, the rights to Sherlock Holmes and using uh, the likeliness, the likelihood, the likeness bleh, of Holmes and Moriarty and all that was presumed, and they're making this episode, to still be the, or I shouldn't say to still, but to be the domain of public. In other words, they could use it freely. They were wrong. So they would have to actually pay off money, basically the equivalent of residuals, anytime they used anything of it. That caused some issues, especially since right now TNG wasn't doing super well financially, and the studio wasn't really swimming in cash in general, not just regarding Star Trek. So that wasn't happening. They spent literally years trying to hammer out this issue. That's why we only get Moriarty twice, by the way. Yay. And if I could just be a quick aside, I truly legitimately feel that is a shame. First of all, as I'll talk about in a moment, Data working with Holmes, as Holmes, fits so well for me. It, it, it's just such a natural fit. Like I mentioned back in, um, I don't remember the episode. Uh, I don't want, I don't remember if it was The Big Goodbye, but it was one of the older episodes. We've already established this in TNG in season one. And Moriarty is brilliant. He's an interesting and engaging character. He is a central villain character, which is something that we haven't had in TNG and never will have in TNG, basically. He also isn't just a villain. 
he has layers to him and he's dynamic. Ultimately, his entire plat this is this is one of the truly rare episodes of early TNG where there's no threat of the weak. I mean, yeah, he makes the ship shake a couple of times, but ultimately he just does that, as Picard points out, to get his attention. This is not a threat of the weak. This is a man desperately pleading for with his creator for his life. And there's something engaging about that. And the way he plays off the other actors brilliantly. Daniel Davis, I wrote down his name, Daniel Davis does a phenomenal job as Moriarty and adds so much wonderful flair to the character. I love it. So, um, Jordy liking building ships makes a lot of sense to me. The engineer, the construction engineer, the, uh, I've, I've described the different types of engineers in my opinion across Star Trek. For me, Jordy has always been the one who actually builds things, who actually designs and modifies and builds ships, engines, etc. So the idea of him enjoying in his, for, in his spare time for fun, building a model ship is awesome. As an aside, the model ship he builds is freaking beautiful. I would love to work on that sucker, as in work on building it. Data's fascination with Holmes, again, makes perfect sense to me. Because Data himself has demonstrated several times in the last year plus that he actually derives, I hesitate to use the word enjoyment, but definitely satisfaction from solving things, from reaching a conclusion, from completing a pattern, or... Uh, or completing an equation, right? He's really good at that, and he really seems to derive satisfaction from it, from a job well done. So the idea of Holmes naturally appealing to him, just it, it clicks perfectly. Now, what I find weird about that is that this episode actually goes contrary to that, which is probably one of the things that I don't like about this episode. Data, someone who has already been established as someone who enjoys solving a mystery, as in figuring out and putting the pieces together and is very good at it, then immediately doesn't understand the enjoyment of solving a mystery and putting the pieces together, and has to have it laboriously explained to him by Geordi and by Pulaski. He goes into the holodeck, and he's like, oh yeah, it's this, and this, and this, and this, and this, and this, and it's like, I can't imagine Data making that mistake. Not at this point. Not after he's already demonstrated some of these character qualities. I feel it's a misstep, and I feel it does him a disservice. Which brings me to my next point. Um, I find it very weird how Pulaski is. Here's the thing. She is... I'm trying to think out of phrases. If you divorce the performer from the words, what she says to Data and to Jordy about Data's capacities is frankly acerbic. It is unkind, and it is unfair, and it is rude. But the actress... I forgot her name again. I'm sorry. No, I'm going to look it up. I'm going to look it up right now. Because I like her. She actually does a really good job, and I kind of want to give her credit where credit is due. Do, 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 do. Here we are. Diana Moldor. Moldauer? Diana Maldor? You know, I don't think I've ever heard a name said. I'm sure I'll get 50 people telling me how to pronounce it, and at least three different pronunciations in that, because that's how that usually works. I've already decided I'm just going to start calling him Meanie, rather than try to even deal with that. Anyways, she does a great performance of Pulaski. She says vicious words in a very kindly tone, as if she's just kind of jostling them. And she instantly and without hesitation agrees to come along in the program because she's honestly engaged by the idea. 
Thus, the words on the paper, which come across as mean-spirited and frankly cruel, instead come across, thanks to the actress's performance, and probably the director, Rob Bowman, knows his stuff, um, and thanks to the, her performance, comes across as someone who's basically trying to be like, look, Data, you need to push yourself. You need to challenge yourself. You need to go in a new direction with this. Oh, yeah, no, I'm, I bet, I bet you can't do it. And she never says it meanly. She says it like, like you would say to a friend. And I like this because this once again continues that sort of performance thing we've got going on with Pulaski where she is uncomfortable around data, but trying to overcome that. You know, she's uncomfortable with her discomfort, as I mentioned in a previous episode. I like that. I don't have a lot of concrete information on this one like I do with Janeway and Kath, uh, Kate Mulgrew. Um, but I feel like it's a similar situation where the writers didn't know what to do with the character, but the actress had a specific mentality, a headcanon, if you will, and that's how she portrayed her role, and thus she comes across in that way. Because that's kind of the, the impression I'm getting with Pulaski when I'm really paying attention to her performance, her tone, her body language, etc. So, I have to mention one other thing really quick, though. Let's imagine the holodeck is real for a second, and not a safety and lawsuit nightmare for a second. Now, I don't know about you guys, but I would love to go on there and be like, load Final Fantasy VI, insert me as Locke Cole, uh, start the program at approximately the second invasion of Narsh. No, 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 let's go back before that. At the uh, the first incursion into Narsh by, Nar by Locke in order to rescue Terra. Start the program at that point. Ready, play, boop. And then I go play FF6 as Locke. That sounds awesome. I would fanboy all over about that one, except not by my own definition. But I would fangasm about that. That would be awesome. And I bet most of you would, too, about your own particular properties. What do you do about repeat playthroughs? See, when we replay, insert game here, we can't really, like, like with very few exceptions, we can't really break the mold. Yeah, we know that guy's the bad guy, but we can't say anything about it. It is a, tr a precious rare game where you can actually use knowledge ahead of time that you're not supposed to know and actually, like, skip to the solution. Sometimes the game inserts a little funny thing for that. But on a holodeck, remember, a holodeck, as I've described before, is effectively a form of AI, or at the very least, a high-level VI, something that can uh, adapt on the fly. It's like having a GM that is also building the world around you as you go through it. It is the best merger of the interpersonal interaction of D&Ding, of or pen and papering, and the <sighs> fantastical interaction of interactive medium of a video game, right? So you could, for example, as... I'll go back to my FF6 example. All right, there we are. And, I, and, I'm, and I'm approaching Figaro Castle. It's like 20 minutes into the game. Uh, less if I'm speedrunning. And there's Kefka. And I'm like, all right. And I've, I'm ready. And I pull up the auto crossbow and shoot Kefka in the head. And since he's weaker at this point in time, I kill him. So <laughs> I could completely derail the entire game if I wanted to do that. Now, how tempting would that be for you? How tempting would it be to basically skip ahead? Now, he's the bad guy, you know? How tempting would it be? I'm, I'm going to use a completely spoiler-free uh, way of saying this, but how tempting would it be to load up uh, Citizen Kane and have the, and you're, you're sitting there with the other reporters and the reporters, we've got to figure out what Rosebud is. You just say, oh, it's a sled. Now, I'm not saying it would be tempting or wouldn't be tempting, so I should phrase, I, I'm using my tone improperly. I'm legitimately asking, what do you guys think? Would you be tempted to do that? Would you not be tempted to do that? Would you do that once just to see what the program came up with? Would you do it every time? 
It's an interesting idea. Because I don't know about you, I like replaying games. Um, but when I replay FF6 to keep my trend going, I don't expect to be able to jump ahead in the narrative, even though I know that game inside and out, gameplay-wise and lore-wise. So it's just an interesting thought, and it's one I haven't really pondered that much. I'd love to hear your guys' thoughts on this concept. Moving on. So Pulaski's weird. Um, quick... There's a scene where two of the biggest uh, nitpicks of this episode happen, and i got to point out both of them. First of all, Moriarty notices that Jordy calls for the arch. Now, <clears throat> that's important. This can be hand-waved away, but the way it is shot and the way it is performed, it makes it clear that the intent is that Moriarty can tell Jordy is calling for the arch. The program hasn't been modified by that point in time, so why can he do that? Remember, it is Jordy's command to create a opponent for data that allows the computer to then basically push a whole bunch of its own processing into making what is effectively a truly sentient, sapient being, who then very quickly develops into the gentleman we know as Moriarty in this episode. So why does he notice it before? Now that can be hand-waved away, but that has always bothered me. Uh, that brings me to my second point. This entire episode hinges on the fact that Jordy casually says something and puts the shit, well, theoretically puts the ship into danger. That is something that I could only believe if I was to presume that Starfleet and Starfleet programming and Starfleet engineering were incredibly incompetent. Now, I know that for any long-term fans of Star Trek, you're going to be like, well, of course they are. But I, I admit, I just have a hard time swallowing that one. Like, at the very least, I could see, yeah, make a program that can defeat data. Specify. Are you sure you want to specify something for commander data to be defeated with all resources? You know, like some kind of warning message or something. I mean, God's sakes, if I tried to delete a file off my desktop right now, it would ha the pop-up would show up that say, are you sure? There's actually a term for that. It's called idiot-proofing. <laughs> it's not really meant to be derogatory, or it is, depending on who you ask. But that, are you sure? <laughs> Come on. Whatever, I'm moving them on. I'm moving on. So, one of the things I like, and I don't actually have a lot of notes of specific scenes in this episode. It all just moved very nice and apace. Good acting from everyone involved. Good presentation. Pulaski does a great job. You know, again, Diane Moldauer. Moldauer. I'm going to go with Moldauer on that one. Um, and uh, Brent Spiner and LeVar Burton all do a phenomenal job of their roles. And the, the guest stars are actually very good. In addition to Daniel Davis, the people who play like the constable and the, the random woman, they did a good job as well. But what I really like is how Data would start deducing things exactly how I just said. To make my point here, Data clearly is actually logically deducing things and clearly is actually again, I hate to use this word, but enjoying the experience. He even shows his work and explains what led to what and how it led to how. Now, I like all that. And it kind of flies in the face of the whole, I'm just going to solve the program immediately thing. I don't understand this thing from earlier. But more to the point, I find it funny that Data was doing this years before Benedict Cumberbatch would in, uh, in the Holmes thing. Although he's not the only one who does it, but you know what I mean. He, of course, they don't have the thing going on, but whatever. <clears throat> Special effects, you know how it is. Now, one thing I, I find a little bit strange is that Jordy tends to look at only surface details. Jordy, 
the engineer, the design engineer who's good at his job, who built a whole model ship, um, who, as we will find out throughout the series, is probably one of the best design engineers uh, in the franchise was only looking at surface things. Now, I get the point. The point is that Jordy is, like, trying to get into this. It's like, no, no, here, I, I can do this, too. Hang on, hang on. And then he fails, so the audience can be like, ha-ha. And then the real professional can come and do it. It's a very classic construction of a scene. I just don't think that fits for Jordy LaForge. Um, in fact, what's funny is I think virtually any other character, except maybe Pulaski or Crusher, that could fit, but not freaking Jordy. I digress. I digress. So, Moriarty, huge props to whoever wrote the dialogue for Moriarty. He portrays, and, and again, huge credit to the actor, he portrays a wonderful perspective of someone who is a holographic character, but doesn't know what the words holographic character mean. In other words, he has comprehension without information. And it's a very tightrope balancing act to portray that kind of a character, to understand that you are a fictional character without comprehending how or why or what or what any of this is. And he does it wonderfully, and he uses wonderful language and wonderful uh, just... I'm going to go with pathos. That's the word I want to use to describe this. He, he has a tremendous pathos in how he presents himself, and it really makes me believe in the character. And one of the other things I like about it is he starts off fairly noticeably villainous. He does abduct Pulaski by force, you know, in a violent manner. And then he calms down a bit the next time we see him. And then he calms down more the next time we see him. And each scene, up until his final, you can see him developing into someone who is not the arch-villain genius but instead someone who is on the cusp of understanding and is simultaneously consumed with terror and delight. Probably my favorite point about that is when he... This is actually skipping ahead a little bit in, this, in the episode, but there's a scene where he's talking with Pulaski, and he says, Are you frightened of me? And she says, No, instantly without hesitation. Then he hesitates for like three full seconds before very uncertainly saying, you should be. Like he himself isn't really 100% certain about that. I love that. Anyways, I also love how they almost immediately come up with an idea to purge the holodeck without you know having control of the computer. That makes sense. Now, what I find a little bit weird is that that purging will also kill anyone inside. That seems like a bit of a design flaw. I also wonder why they don't just try to beam her out. Let's not get into that. I mean, they do detect she's in there, right? So instead, we'll just go in and deal with this. Okay, sure. Excuse me. And, and before you say he has control of the computers, they have shuttles. Shuttles have transporters. We've been over this. But that doesn't bother me as much as the fact that Troy apparently senses Moriarty on, on the holodeck, which is unfortunately very typical of how they treated Troy in the first two seasons as the magic whatever we need for the episode plot coupon. Um, it is a damn shame in my opinion because as we've already seen up to this point in time, Marina Sardis can act and they can do some good stuff with her if they try. Thankfully they will in the future, so yay. But, um... Uh, <laughs> There's a bit uh, where Michael Dorn shows a wharf, and he's in this big suit. I love his suit. Just a little quick aside I wanted to say there. Um, the final confrontation I have nothing to add to. There's no music. It is a wonderful, deeply character-driven scene. 
as Picard and Data and Pulaski and Moriarty effectively confront, confront the truth as bluntly and as openly as they can. And Picard, Patrick Stewart, of course, is wonderful in his role. And Moriarty comes, again, he has that just whole, that desperation. And you can almost see the moment when he slowly resigns himself to his fate. There's a brief line, he says, which I really sympathize with and empathize with. He says, uh, grant me life. Well, I cannot do that. Then you must kill me. Because having tasted the possibility of true life, the option of being relegated to mere survival or worse is something so abominable to him that he can't even imagine it. Just please, if you can't give me life, please just kill me. He says it wonderfully, and he says it just a little bit too quickly, too, as he's trying to force the words out. I do not want to die, and as Picard says, I don't want to kill you. Now, this is where we have to talk about a couple of changes. First of all, I do think this version of the ending works better. I know that's weird, but I do think this is a change for the best. Because in the original script, which you can actually find a copy of online, I found a copy while going through uh, the, my notes for this on uh, Memory Alpha, specifically, um... You can find an original copy of the script where basically the the whole plot point was the piece of paper, the one that had the Enterprise drawn on it. Now this is funny. I actually didn't mention this earlier because I wanted to bring this up now. It's more relevant here. See, that makes sense in the original script and in the new one. In the original script, it was a plot point because Matter shouldn't be able to leave the holodeck. And so the, the fact that Matter was leaving the holodeck was a sign that it was broken and wrong. Uh, no explanation for how or why. It just magically is doing that now. And so, therefore, he decided to go ahead and trick Moriarty into leaving the holodeck. And therefore, oh, God, I'll give you everyone. And that's the end of Moriarty. And the idea was that Patrick, excuse me, Picard was outsmarting the Moriarty, which was the whole thematic point. That, that while Data could defeat Moriarty, Picard could. That kind of goes back into that whole point Pulaski was making, which, as I mentioned, I feel was incorrect. Thus, I prefer the actual ending better. And this is how the paper works well for that, because Pulaski drinks tea and has crumpets in this episode. Now, I know I've already made this point, but this episode makes my, my argument about the holodeck more solid than anything else I possibly could. What do you think is more likely? That a force field with some holographic projections on it can perfectly mimic the taste texture and physical presence of liquid and, and liquid with sugar melted into it and bread and then be eaten and then be inside her stomach still being projected in there or they use the replicator which is a thing to replicate actual scones and actual tea so she can drink and eat it make sense Hence, the headcanon I've always used is that, and I believe this is actually headcanon, I don't think they ever confirm this throughout the course of the show, but my headcanon is that the holodeck uses replicators in addition to holograms. Thus, the paper was an actual piece of paper that actually physically existed and could leave the holodeck just fine, just like those crump crumpets in Pulaski. I mean, I want you to picture from what it would be like if you leave the holodeck and all of a sudden there's just some stuff that was in your stomach that isn't now. That's not going to feel pretty pleasant, is it? So I think this also works better, too, because for me, A, I don't agree with the idea that Data couldn't can deduce his way through this one just because he's a machine. I think that's doing him a massive disservice. And B, I find the actual thematic point of the new episode to be stronger than the thematic point of the old one. 
The old one is all about Picard outsmarting Moriarty, you know. The, and that's, that's fine. That works. That's clever. There's nothing necessarily wrong with that. But I just like the idea better that Picard is instead reaching out a hand to a new life form. And this whole new perspective on that. Because that's what Moriarty is. He is, uh, I believe this is true, even considering retcons, he is our first living, sentient, sapient, holographic life form. And the idea that he can't help him is something that obviously bothers Picard. He, he doesn't hold back about it. He is very blunt about the truth. But there's no relish there. You've been defeated. No, there's none of that. There's almost a morose regret in the way he informs Moriarty of the cold, harsh truth. And Moriarty, there's this line where Picard flat out says, you know, you're not alive. And Moriarty says, is he alive? Points to data. Another wonderful parallel. TNG began the idea of artificial life as a concept in Star Trek. Voyager would then take it to the whole next level with the Doctor. And I've already given my thoughts on that. I'm not going to recover that here. You can go watch my Voyager stuff. Don't watch the early stuff. It's really crap. But thus we see the beginnings of the next level of artificial life. An artificial life form that has a form, or an artificial life form that, well, also has a form but is confined to circuitry. Rather than being photonic, Moriarty is basically a program, pure software, but still having the capacities of sentience and sapiens. And that's a whole new idea for them, a true AI at that point. And I would probably argue, this is just my opinion, that Moriarty at this point qualifies as a low-level AI, and the next time we see him, he would qualify as a high-level AI, because... Time has passed, and we'll get to that later. And I want to discuss more about him and his presentation and the concept of the AI in his next presentation, so we'll talk about that later. But I think I could sum up my thoughts on this episode with one line that Moriarty himself says. My fate is in your hands, as perhaps it always was. There's so much regret in the way he quietly states that so matter-of-factly. I'd like to say I can't imagine what it's like to be powerless over your own life, but unfortunately, I have been powerless over my own life, and I imagine some of you have as well. And thus, this is the final reason why I feel this new plot works better, because it makes Moriarty someone we, the audience, can sympathize with, that we can understand where he's coming from, makes him more human, more relatable. This is a creation begging his creator, and his creator saying, I can't. And then Picard reaches out with that offer, and I love that. We'll do our best. We'll try to study the program. We'll talk more about that next time he shows up, but I'm just going to say with a bit of regret that I do wish he had been able to meet Dr. Pulaski again. I think that would have been a nice touch. But unfortunately, that was not to be. I hope you've enjoyed my discussions here, and I'll be seeing you guys next time.